May I invite your attention to Genesis chapter 2. Follow as I read, beginning at verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 2, at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She called, she called, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What I want to do as I start is I want to read you some, um, just some brief snippets from my from my wedding ceremony, the one that I uh, that I use here. Um, so you just listen as I um, as I read these things that, that's come from my wedding ceremony. Here they are. Um, and do you make these your marriage vows with the full purpose that they shall continue binding and sacred throughout this earthly life? Okay, how about this one? Uh, and will you love her, honor her, and cherish her as long as you both shall live? Or how about this one? Um, the husband is asked to say, I pledge to be your loving and faithful husband. And then the last one, um, Right towards the end, I say, and what God has joined together, let no man dare put asunder. Guys, did, did anything stand out to you as I read that? Did you notice anything? I mean, did any theme kind of crop up? I, I, I want it to. I hope it did. Uh, I try. Um, and and the, the, the point or the, the word that I would use is the word Permanence. Permanence. I try to emphasize that. And, and those, those quotes that I've taken, all except the last one, all of them came out of the vows section. When the little couple, you know, is looking at each other and they exchange these vows. Well, um, that's what's called a covenant. You knew that, didn't you? It's called a marital covenant. Um, that's what's taking place in a, in a wedding ceremony, a marriage covenant. You know, and, and that comes from the Old Testament. That is, the, the whole idea of covenants comes from the Old Testament. Uh, you've got lots of them in the Old Testament. The idea of somebody covenanting, you know. 
And, but unfortunately, in the Old Testament, there was no attorneys with whom you could file a covenant or no uh, uh, attorneys that you could file a breach of covenant. There was no written document. So here's what they did. When, when a covenant was enacted in, in the Old Testament, they would, it was normally accompanied by something very dramatic. There's several of them in the Old Testament. For instance, uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, anybody know that book? When, uh, when Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, was um, going to redeem uh, Naomi and her property, which included Ruth, um, he met with the elders of the city, and it says in the text, it's in uh, Ruth chapter 4, that he t- took off a sandal, and he gave the sandal to the seller. There was this exchange of sandals in, the, in that making of, a, of, of an agreement, of a, of a, of a contract. Um, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, and in, um, uh, he finds that people are being very uh, hard on the, the poor and the oppressed. And so he gets all over them. I mean, he just really gets angry. And so they say, okay, 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 we, we, we will do as you say. We will do as you say. Um, we won't do that anymore. We won't continue to charge usurious interest rates. We'll stop. And it says that, that, that in that agreement that they made, what Nehemiah did is he took his garment and he shook it out. It's in chapter five. And, um, and, and, it, and he says, may you be shaken out too if you don't keep your word here. But the real biggie, the real biggie in terms of covenants in the Old Testament, um, is the one in Genesis 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham. Remember that? They take animals and they cut them in half. And then God walks through the, the halves of the animals and pledges, if I'm not faithful to my promises, may this be done to me. That's basically what's going on. All very, very dramatic. Huh? Don't you think? But you know those Old Testament people. They were backward, unsophisticated, unscientific, weren't they? <laughs> not so fast. Guys, have you ever wondered why we do what we do at a wedding ceremony? There's some pretty strange stuff that goes on at a wedding ceremony. <laughs> you know, first of all, we spend enormous amounts of money. I had somebody tell me just recently that they went to a reception that he estimated cost seven, between seventy-five dollars and $100,000 for the reception. Wish I'd have been invited. Um, imagine that kind of money. We, we, we spend that kind of money on one event of one day. And then, then the, the, the bride's dress. Oh my gosh. The, the extremes to which we go to find that dress and, and how the little girls dream about the dress. And we travel to Arkansas and we travel to Mississippi. We travel anywhere. They got dresses and, and we, we agonize over that dress choice. And, and you know, there's certain rules about color, you know, and, and, uh, and, and so we, 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 we buy this dress and it's, it's the most expensive dress that we'll ever buy and we wear it once. And then there's all these other taboos. You know, like, you know, you're not supposed to see the bride before the ceremony. Don't see the bride, you know. So we hide her off in a little room so nobody will see each other, you know. And then we go to the reception. And, and, and these two very sophisticated 21st century people take cake and they smush it in the other person's mouth. 
You know, she's been working on that makeup for four hours. And he just smushes it all over her face. And she him. And then, then we throw rice. Does anybody know where that came from? Does anybody know why we, where did, but I mean, if you're really politically correct, you don't throw rice, you throw bird seed. You throw bird seed. Now that makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? At least the birds can eat it. And then, 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 then we throw the bouquet. And if we're really on the edge, we throw a garter. A woman takes a garter off of her leg and throws it. What in the world is that? Gang, do you know why we do all that stuff? That very dramatic stuff? Hmm? It is because we are trying to separate that day from all other days that I'll ever live. It is because we want that day to be so memorable, so ingrained in their little consciousness. We want this day to be a day of all days. And do you know what it is that makes the day itself so special? It's the vows. It's the stuff that that this little couple will say to each other. And, and under normal circumstances, those words will never be said again. They're said one time. We don't want them to forget those words. Because they are saying things to each other that we don't ever want to go away. And so what we do so that they remember those words is we do all this strange stuff. All this hoopla. All this throwing things and eating things and buying all these funny clothes. And because. Because those words. Those words are unrepeatable under normal circumstances. You know, um, just recently I did a funeral where the, um, the man who had died, the couple had been married 62 years. And when in the funeral service I said they had been married 62 years, everybody went, oh. And I understand that. But ladies and gentlemen, you do know, don't you? That's supposed to be the norm. Because you said so. You said that you were going to keep your word until death did you part. I have made a vow that I am going to do certain things until I die. That's what we said. Now, <laughs> you know, that means a couple of things. It means a lot of things, actually. But 
Uh, first of all, I, the, the first thing I'd like to tell you is that there's some words that need to be expunged from our vocabularies. There's just some words that we don't ever, that we don't ever need to use. We don't ever need to say. We don't ever need to discuss. They don't ever need to come out of our mouth. They never, they never need to be said by these lips of mine. It's the word, or one of the words is divorce. I don't ever need to use that word. I don't ever need to discuss divorce. I might want to discuss murder, but not divorce. No. It doesn't need to be included in our vocabulary. I'll tell you some more that should never, ever, 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 ever come out of your mouth as a married person. Here they are. I hate you. Never. Never. And, you know, and of course, you say, well, I was, I was angry when I said that. Oh, okay. But I'll never forget it that I heard it. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we exchange something called vows. Didn't we? And there is nothing more sacred than those promises, that covenant that I made. Now, guys, um, I understand that today is Mother's Day. Um, it's not Marriage Day. I, I understand that. But, um, you know, most of you became wives before you became mothers. And, and I say to you, um, and I think you'll agree with this, that the greatest enemy to you being a good mother would be the breakup of your marriage. So it seems to me that if I could say something that would contribute to the overall health of the marriage, it would go a long ways to contributing to the overall health of being a mother. I believe that. I believe the best thing that I can do for you as a mother is try to help when it comes to the marriage. So that's what I'm going to do. If you're, if you're new to Grace Advance, we do this. We don't do it every year, but I do, I've done it several years. Is that we use these Sundays between Mother's Day and Father's Day to talk about the family. So we're going to talk about marriage for a couple, three weeks. And then the last two weeks, we're going to talk about parenting, which should cost me my job. But um, um, that's what we're going to do for these, in this little series on the, on the family. And the, the, the thing that it seems to me is that is the heartbeat of a good marriage is the value that we place on the vows. The commitment that we took. And so I want to talk to you about it. I, I, um, I hope it will be helpful. Um, we want to take a look at maybe not so much the vows as simply the whole idea of permanence. Guys, I have been married almost 39 years. In July, it will be 39 years that Susie and I have been married. And our experience as a couple has been pretty much like um, a lot of other marriages, and which has brought me to this at least one conclusion. There's no counseling. There is, there's no seminars. There's no book 
that can prepare you or me for the stresses and the strains that will be put on our relationship, the marriage relationship, as we endeavor to keep our vows in a fallen world. Um, you know, guys, I do a, a few marriages a year, and consequently, I do the the counseling that that the premarital counseling that comes along with those weddings. And and <laughs> in all honesty, the counseling is. Um, in a lot of ways, it's a waste of time. Did you ever see the movie, the, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Did you ever see that? Well, in premarital counseling, it's kind of like the invasion of the mind snatchers. I mean, they left the body in there, but the mind is not there. It's just a couple of bodies sitting in my office, and they're enduring these, these hours with me. Can you imagine how awkward it is for a 61-year-old man to be speaking to two 23-year-olds about sex? But at least they're interested in that one, that subject. When I come to communication, it's like, I mean, the, the mind has been snatched. The budgets, where did it go? It's, they endure, bless their sweethearts. Because it, it helps cut the price of the marriage license. But, but guys, I do my darndest to prepare them. But I, but I know all the while that there's none of what I'm, none of what I say to this cute little couple that's in my office can prepare them for the stresses and the strains that they're going to confront in a fallen world. The, the unexpected, the, the unpredictable, the unwanted, the, the, um, those things that come out of nowhere, things that, that make you forget, that make you forget the vows, that make you forget that you're in A covenant. Go to the average Christian bookstore, and what will you find? You will find an absolute plethora of books on the subject of marriage, offering advice and formulas and methods and seven-step programs and techniques. And tell me this, ladies and gentlemen. Has the abundance of material that's available in the Christian bookstores helped? Well, apparently not, because our divorce rate as the professing Christian world is as high as, if not a bit more than, the divorce rate of the non-Christian world. And, and, and may I just tack this on? I'm convinced that our preoccupation with marriage is telling. I, I, I think that Christians are desperate for help in the pursuit of a happy marriage. And that may be our first big problem, which I want to discuss in a minute. One of the things that, that I begin with in a wedding ceremony, if you've ever been to one of my wedding ceremonies, but one of the things that I begin with, even before you give away the bride and all that business, is I try to point out where marriage came from. And I do so by an allusion to Genesis 1 and 2. 
And so I hope you've got your Bible still open. I'd like to walk you through that passage again. Genesis 1 and 2. And I want to show you what's going on here, um, and, and hopefully it'll be helpful. But start with me in, in Genesis chapter 1. And of course, this Genesis chapter 1 is the record of the, of the creation. Um, I happen to be a creationist. That's just completely an aside. But um, look at verse 4. And God saw that light was good. And then um, in verse 10, and God saw that it was good. In verse 12, uh, it says, and God saw that it was good. In verse 18, uh, and God saw that it was good. And verse 21, uh, and God saw that it was good. Uh, gang, do, do you see the rhythm that, that is developing in the text as, as this litany of good things is discussed? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 18... <clears throat> Something awful happens. It's like somebody slammed on the brakes and brought this thing to a screeching halt. It's like somebody dropped a a, a, a wrench into a well-oiled machine as this thing is good, good, good. And then we come to verse 18 and God says, it is not good. Um, so... The not goodness that he identifies is that man is alone. And before verse 18 is finished, God announces that he's going to fix it. That he's going to bring about a remedy. And the remedy is going to be found in a helper. Now, guys, stay with me. Because this is interesting to me. And and I'm going to speculate in a moment. But notice in verse 19, he does not immediately set out to create Eve. In fact... All this happens pre-fall. Sin is not entered yet. It doesn't happen in chapter 3. All this is going on before the fall, before the entrance of sin. And he says, this is not good. i got to fix this. And yet, he doesn't immediately turn to fix it. In fact, in verse 19, where do we turn? We turn to the animal kingdom. And God brings all the animals to Adam and he begins to name them. It's as if God is giving Adam an object lesson. That is... That through the naming of these animals, it begins to dawn on Adam that there's no golden retriever, there's no Arabian stallion that will ever eliminate the problem that I have. Oh, my my golden retriever might fetch my slippers. And my Arabian stallion might carry me to the grocery store. But all after that's said and done, I've still got the same problem. The same not goodness. And so finally, after he names all the, 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 the animals, God gets down to business in verse 21. And he creates Eve. And Eve names her. Which is something that we're going to have to look at later on in the series. But we'll come back to that. But God himself, it's almost like a father of a bride, bringing Eve down the aisle to bring him, to bring her to Adam. <coughs> It's, it's as if God uses this naming of animals incident to, to demonstrate to Adam, to heighten his aloneness, to prove to him that there's nothing then created that will ever eliminate this, this problem that he's got. And so God creates Eve, as you're told in verse 21 and following. He brings her, God brings her to Adam. 
And then we get verse 23, which another preacher, friend, well, he's not a friend of mine. I, I just know him. His name is Derek Kidner. Derek Kidner pointed out that verse 23 is the first recorded words of man. And it is poetry. That's what a woman can do for you, gentlemen. She can make your heart sore. She can civilize you. We men, we're, we're more like the animal kingdom until Eve arrives. And then we become poets. And on the heels of the poetry, God creates a brand new institution. Verse 24. And it's called marriage. Now, some of the details of verse 24 we're going to have to come back to later. But for now, why is it important to know that the origins of this institution came from the design, the architecture, the brilliance, and the genius of God? That's all I want you to see. Is that this institution known as marriage, which is really taking its licks these days... This institution was something that God created, He designed, He thought it up. Why is that important? May I list four reasons and I'm pretty much done. First, that means that the purpose of marriage, like every other creation of God, that the purpose of this creation known as marriage is that it exists to bring glory to God. Your marriage exists to bring glory to God, not your happiness. Guys, maybe the most profound piece of marital counsel you will ever hear is contained in my next sentence. Listen. Stop your desperate pursuit of happiness and start to pursue how your marriage can bring glory to God because that, ladies and gentlemen, is its intent. Guys, we start at the wrong place. We, we enter marriage because we, we know that or we think and we hope that maybe that's going to be the peace that is going to make us everlastingly happy. And well, we sure want to be happy. And so let me, let me, let me do what's necessary to make me happy. And so I'll get married. And then things get kind of rocky. And then we turn to the Christian bookstore. We read the books about the techniques and the seven step programs and the methods and yada, yada, yada. And then we find we're still not happy. And what's the problem? Come here! I'll tell you the problem. And I don't mean to oversimplify it, ladies and gentlemen. Very frankly, this is, this is marvelously profound. God created this thing like he did the Arabian stallion and the golden retriever and Adam. And he all exists. Everything, that is, every creation exists to bring God glory. Your marriage, at the end of the day, does not belong to you. It is his. Gang, do you know the text? A very familiar text in the New Testament. Jesus uh, 
gives it to us in John chapter, I mean, in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Did you think that that doesn't apply to marriage? It does. One of my heroes, and I use this in most wedding ceremonies, is C.S. Lewis, who says, Seek heaven and you get earth thrown in. Seek earth and it all disappears. Guys, I say to you that a whole lot of marital pain could be avoided if you would start here where the Bible starts. Sit down with your spouse and ask this question. How can we as a couple bring glory to God? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe you should. Because ladies and gentlemen, the the reason I brought you to Genesis 2 is to show you that this thing that called marriage, it's God's idea and it belongs to Him. And it exists so that you and I might enter it so that we can bring glory to God somehow. Here's the second thing it means. Because marriage is the sovereign creation of God, and it's not the creation of some, the invention of some sociologist, it's, it's not the product of a, of a male-dominated culture that seeks to oppress and, and, and uh, uh, be mean to women. It doesn't, it didn't come from that. It came from the sovereign hands of God. Because it does, that means he gets to name the rules. God holds the patent. He gave us the blueprint, the, the, the design for this thing. If you deviate from that blueprint, it's gonna cost you. Gang, anything that deviates from the design is going to break down. I have a nice wristwatch that I've had for about 20 years that was given to me by Floyd Harvey. It's a nice wristwatch. It keeps nice time. It has for 20 years. But if I use it to nail nails, any and anything used outside of its design is going to break down. I'm here to tell you that the one who's got the patent is God. He names the rules. And if you deviate from those rules... We will pay. I I can assure you, my dear friends, that your design is not as good as his. So, scrap yours, take his. Go build marriage based on stuff that you find in this book. Third, did God bring me my spouse? (laughs) Well, if you're married, the answer to that question is... Yes, he did. God led that woman, that man, your wife, your husband to you. And and your, your decision may have been a sinful one, but we'll have to talk about that at another time. But for now, I can simply say to you, get to work on that one. Fourth, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 19, some, I don't know how many years, let's just say 8,000 years later, Jesus adopts this paradigm and uses the same words. In fact, he lifts the words out of Genesis chapter 2 to discuss the issue of marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19. 
That is, 8,000 years after God gave them, the second person of the Trinity says that time has not changed them. Time has not altered them. 8,000 years after God said them, the Son of God is saying they're still enforced. Now, 2,000 years after Jesus said that, I want to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the words of institution, this, 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 this glorious design given to us by God, it still hasn't changed. The intent and the design for this institution known as marriage has not changed. It hasn't been antiquated. There's not a better way. This is still it. Now, let me close. Jesus is not the only one that picks up Genesis 2 uh, in the New Testament. Paul does. Paul picks up Genesis 2, the, the language of Genesis 2, in his great treatise on the subject of marriage in the book of Ephesians. If you can find Ephesians real quick, I'd like for you to see this. And with this, we'll close. But <clears throat> um, Now, guys, this is the section, Ephesians chapter 5, this is the section that talks about submission and all that. And, I, and I'm going to talk about that later on, but not today. What I want you to look at this morning is verses 31 and 32. Let me read you verse 31. Ephesians 5, 31. Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father, there's the language, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Ah, one flesh. We all know what that means. Not so fast. Look at verse 32. Because in verse 32, Paul says, I'm not talking about what you're thinking about. Notice, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Guys, do you see what Paul has done? He is saying, the thing that I have in mind with this one flesh business is not the relation, the physical relationship of a husband and a wife. I'm talking about the relationship that exists between Christ and his bride. And you know who his bride is? Us. The church. When I became a Christian, I got married. I got married to Christ. Drawn out of this institution of marriage is an image that depicts Christ's union with his wife, the church. Paul is using Christ's relationship to his church to illustrate what Christian marriage ought to be. Gang, how downright risque. That Paul is using sex as a picture of the intimacy that Christ enjoys with his church. But take one more step and we're done. Jesus Christ has covenantally bound himself to his bride. Which means permanence. He will never leave me, nor forsake me. He has taken a vow. And so have we.
So let's get back to work on being as faithful to our vow as he is to his. Guys, if Jesus Christ threw spouses away like we do, we'd be in big trouble. But here's the gospel. You come to Christ and he will never divorce you. Our Father, I I thank you for the grand assurances of, of your permanent commitment to me and all others who have embraced the Lord Jesus. And I pray, O God, that you will stir us to a newfound level of commitment to be faithful to our, our vows, our commitments, our covenant. And though the world can throw balls at us that we cannot hit, and we will be surprised with pain that is that we never dreamed, Lord God, would you grant us grace that we might at all cost, keep our vows. Might they be binding and sacred throughout this earthly life. Of course, Lord Jesus, the model is your commitment to us. You've never made a vow and broken one yet. Forgive us that we have. But here we are, O God, to... um, to ask for the grace to keep our word, particularly the one that we made to our spouse of lifelong faithfulness. Might you find that among us in an abundant quantity. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.